Hello, this is No Big Deal, a podcast where I talk to people who think they're no big deal, but of course they're wrong, because I believe almost everybody has a little something interesting to say when you get right down to it. These guests will typically be friends or family, because in some ways this is a personal project for me to ask the people I know and love things that I've either never been able to ask them or just never happened to ask them. But rest assured, I am editing these conversations so they remain as interesting as possible to whoever might want to listen. Today's conversation is with Alexis Schwartz and Gabe McNeil. Alexis is a new friend, but already feels like an old one and is a joy to talk to. And Gabe, her arm candy, who joins the conversation a little later after some coaxing, is an old friend. They are a couple who work for separate small distribution companies that connect wine producers with restaurants and retail in New York. But not just any wine producers, rather ones who go the extra mile to produce natural wine and take great care in doing so. What does natural wine mean? Is that just organic? Is it biodynamic? What is biodynamic? Why should we care about any of this? I know next to nothing about wine, so we talk about all of this in layman's terms as I expose my Indiana boy ignorance on the matter, and we also talk about Alexis's very interesting family background. These are passionate people who love what they do, and I sincerely hope you enjoy hearing us talk half as much as we enjoy doing it. Alexis Schwartz and Gabe McNeil. Whoa, she got it. What's What's your middle name? Taylor. Alexis Taylor Schwartz. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's so strong. Yeah. I don't know. So, I don't actually know. I know that your last name is Schwartz, and there's a Jewish lineage in your family, but mm. I don't actually know. I know that your background's interesting, but I don't, that's what I know about it, that it's interesting, and nothing more. Okay. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Were you born in another country, or were you born in the U.S.? I was born in the U.S. I was born in San Francisco. And at UCSF, so proper San Franciscan. And Wait, I. What, is, what does that mean? You know, a lot of people will say that they were born, that they're from San Francisco, but. But they're from Oakland? They're from somewhere else, yeah. Okay. So there's always been some family pride that I actually was born in San Francisco. Okay. Proper. But um, I have a very unique, yeah, family background for sure. I was adopted into a Jewish American family. And my birth family is Brazilian on both sides. Everybody's Brazilian. And I have a very, I feel very fortunate to say that I have a, not just an open adoption, but a very, very open adoption where I really grew up in almost, I guess what I'll call it more like a tribal context where everybody's participating. Everybody's, you know, a parent in some way, shape or form. And everybody's cool with each other. And everybody, yeah, is connected with each other, which is very... Wow. excellent and very selfless and yeah. i think created a really yeah like powerful foundation for me to get answers to questions and feel connected to both my jewish heritage and my brazilian heritage and feel yeah very much connected to both of those despite them being could not that like both of those families could not be more different from one another yeah <laughs> and even within a traditional family it's not always that everyone is cool with each other. So it seems exceptionally lucky in that way. Yeah. And I I mean, it keeps growing. It keeps getting kind of crazier. Um, My birth, I'm very, very close with my birth mother and my whole side on her side, Um, you know, and through divorces and new partners, there's always new characters coming into our family. And it's just been this great examination in kinship is what you choose it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel a lot of pride in the dysfunction, but also the, yeah, like I mentioned, like the selflessness and everybody just wanting what was best for me and, and putting that first and foremost, despite perhaps their other downfalls. Um, that truly is a really loving foundation that I need to remind myself of more often, perhaps. And so were your Brazilian parents living in San Francisco when and that's how you were born on US soil so yes my birth father wasn't but he was kind of flying back and forth between Brazil and San Francisco and my birth mother and my aunt were living in San Francisco kind of pseudo legally 
So I'm actually a first-generation American in terms of my Brazilian family. Um, And yeah, and you know, it's just also been really interesting to be a part of a Jewish American family thoroughly and then also to be a part of an immigrant family. Like obviously the Jewish immigrant, his tapestry is quite rich, but also to be a part of a family where I have undocumented family members, I have deported family members like my grandmother, um, and to kind of understand the way that that affects families as well has been really interesting and sometimes confusing because I live such a different life. Yeah, I was just going to ask if there was ever anything confusing about this and maybe coupled with that, at what age did your parents tell you this or were you always just aware and it was just one big happy family? Yeah, it really has been from the get-go. I mean, um, it was a private arranged adoption. It was arranged when I was in the womb and the only... Well, one of the big criteria was that my birth mother really wanted to be a part of my life and a part of my upbringing, and she wanted to find adopted parents who would be okay with that Mm -hmm. and um, welcoming that. But I think when I reflect on what Claude just told me, you know, they kind of all walked in blind with no, no real footprint as to how that actually manifests in reality. And so the fact that everybody kind of just made it happen and we've we're here now is pretty cool yeah they really took a plunge because it's scary for everybody involved even the adoptive family knowing that totally at any moment who knows what kind of feelings surge at some point you know once the kid is born and yeah that's amazing so and i mean the stakes were actually even higher because in brazilian culture you do not give up blood so this was a really, really big deal, not just from this like progressive kind of avant-garde idea of like how a family could work, you know, on our side, like the American side, but on the Brazilian side, you do not give up blood. So she was actually like shunned by a lot of our family for like over a year or two. Um, Yeah, then that begs the question of how they arrived at that decision. Yeah. Your biological parents. I mean, she's a strong lady. Uh (laughs) With, you know, she just knew that she wanted what was best for me and it wasn't realistic for her to raise me personally or with my birth father. Um, Was that a financial decision or a career priority decision? I think it was like a mixture of a bunch of different things, but... They were also best friends. I'm very much a love child. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that it just wasn't really a true reality for any of them. And really the financial context, she was she's a jewelry designer now, is quite successful, but at the time was teaching art, teaching jewelry classes, and was trying to start her own business. And sure. my birth father was bouncing back between the countries. And, you know. and what was he doing for work? It's a good question. I don't really know, actually. Okay, yeah. Just because you haven't asked him or you talked to him less? I actually haven't talked to him in a very long time. Okay. So he was a big part of my life when I was really young, but it's definitely been completely different, um, totally, like, absent involvement, which is the opposite of, like, my birth mother's side between my grandparents, my aunt, my uncle, my cousins, like, even extended family in Brazil. But on his side, it's not really a part of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were, were they when you were younger, the rest of his family were in the mix more? Um, they were always in Brazil, whereas like my birth mother's side has always been in the Bay Area. So obviously that, that made a big difference. But he, you know, I think about it sometimes, like I think there was just a lot more fear and a lot more, I even know just from other personal stories in my life, just the taboo factor um, was much heavier on him and on his family and his relationships where I think it was just too challenging for him to be open-minded to a different approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's like a lot of fear involved yeah, culturally and personally. As it was for your mom too. It, it wasn't necessarily actually heavier for him, but just harder for him to handle. I think harder for him to be open mm-hmm. and to like be selfless. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a, a male. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so what did your uh, adoptive parents do? So my dad, um, very much, you know, son of the, it's very baby boomer, son of depression era, Jewish Bronx, 
parents um, we really grew up very very working class and just had this kind of materialistic kind of limelight vision for his life and worked his butt off um, and got himself in a really really successful community of you know the peninsula of the Bay Area so he's always you know and also kind of the trope of um, the Jewish accountant okay so yeah. he's a CPA um, and then my mom um, you know she was just like a homemaker so yeah. they really kind of fell into these baby boomer kind of tropes they're in their mid-60s and yeah there's a there seems to be a thread in boomer parents that I'm aware of that is uh, that borderline poverty that they grow up with lights a fire like no other and they tend to flip the script entirely and become some of the most well-to-do yeah. <laughs> self-made and obsessive you know, I think about about um, material worth mm -hmm. which I think has helped us I mean we'll get around to even our job my job and Gabe's job but sure. I think like has not for one second do I not um, am I not grateful for the privilege I have and it's in stark contrast to what my life would have been like like I've been to the house in Brazil where I would have grown up I've seen the life I would have had um, and so not for one second do I not appreciate the privilege that I grew up with um, and I feel like I've done a really good job to utilize it but simultaneously my parents have been great teachers to show me what I don't want to prioritize and I think that that's directly related to like you said like the way that they grew up um, with a lot of nothing and a lot of dreams and you know in the Midwest a Jewish kid in a town where nobody else is a Jew uh, even just like a story that my dad told me that sticks with me really strongly you know when he was a middle kid and I just remember him telling me this story where he was walking across the street and he saw that his pant cuff was was messed up and he like stopped in the middle of the street to to fix it when there's like oncoming traffic and his mother had to like pull him and tug him so he didn't get hit by a car you know just this like perfectionist tendency and this like you know, really being connected to like your material items and, and valuing the aesthetic first and the appearance first and all of these different things has really been something that's uh, like shaped who he is. Does he by any chance write his name on his belongings? Oh yes, he does indeed. Uh -huh. Yeah, I we're drinking some mezcala that you smuggled in your suitcase out of some um, gas Gary Allen Schwartz cups oh the glass that says gas yeah those, those are, are his, his initials. initials wow so he goes beyond just like a sharpie marker in the oh the no no, no. It's, every, it's engraved yeah. <laughs> i ask this because i all of my friends parents again these boomer parents who had next to nothing as a kid and then bootstrapped it on up and have their nice things that yeah. they take really great care of not only do they maintain the hell out of them yeah but they're ever fearing that the possibility of someone taking this thing and them not being able to prove that it's theirs. I don't I know believe what that. <laughs> I believe that. I mean, but yeah, they. My dad always takes such good care of everything, and I just destroy everything. And I'm, I'll get old. One of my favorite things is uh, old vintage pieces from my parents, particularly clothing. And I receive these beautiful old sweaters from the '70s, the '80s. So they've kept, and it's just looks like it came from the shop yesterday. Mm -hmm. And I get like two uses out of it before I've made a hole and. When generational my, divides when my dad gets rid of a pair of shoes they look the way that they did the day he bought them but the soul is worn to nothing so yeah. he knows that they're done but everybody else is like that's a brand new pair of shoes yeah. you're doing like, <laughs> like resole them dad <laughs> so did they did your adoptive parents have other kids of their own or did they adopt other kids no kids? they my mother had a series of miscarriages and they were never able to conceive and so adoption was kind of the last option for them um yeah so no other siblings on that side which i've always actually kind of hated being an only child um i always kind of wish i had siblings so i would always kind of steal my friends siblings as my own did you have siblings on the other side though the brazilian so i actually only recently found out i have like a very young stepsister in brazil through my birth father but um other than that no so oh, wow. it's just me yeah have you talked to her I haven't. I or, hope maybe one day. I don't even think she 
knows about me and I actually don't know if I'm supposed to know about her but I do okay yeah did did you feel like everyone actually liked each other and were friends and were getting along or were they was this were some people just tolerating the other person for you for the sake of you having all these people in your life I think everybody genuinely you know and I've I've gleaned bits and pieces of the story over time as I've gotten older um I really just think everybody takes this approach that we're family. And I think that there's also a lot of genuine and very deeply felt gratitude for one another when it comes at least to my adopted parents and my birth mother and my birth side. Mm -hmm. The whole family. Um, The whole family, nowadays anyway. Um, But yeah, I think specifically when Claudia was really doing this on her own, she was 27 she was my age now uh when i think about like the strength that i that it took and you know even to i mean she's an artist she's super creative super strong like powerful woman and you know she even had me without drugs you know all these themes Uh, she just was very steadfast and knew exactly what she wanted to do and was really grateful to find people who believed in that too and and were so selfless and you know, I think that they couldn't be more different um, as people and in terms of priorities at large. But at the end of the day, there's a really like symbiotic relationship when it came to wanting what's best for me. And um, and yeah, I think my I have a lot of I, it's been tumultuous at certain times, certainly. Um, but I think at the end of the day, Claudia can really, really see like a pure, the pure love uh, in my adopted parents. And then they see that in her too. Mm-hmm. And they went through something really hard together. Right. Yeah. That's not, I, I keep thinking of it as these two different sides making these two different big decisions, but they are also figuring out this really unique thing together. Totally. That, With no floor plan, mm-hmm. no roadmap. And uh, I think it was maybe. You know, it's also always maybe a little harder for probably Tracy, my adopted mom, and Claudia because, you know, I kind of always put Claudia on this pedestal for a really long time, and my birth dad was largely out of the picture. Um, we were three. It's kind of a hard number. Yeah. Um, but to see, you know, regardless, just like the the true meaning of selflessness and the true meaning of love yeah hard um, particularly between for, women yeah. right hard particularly for the moms because the the dads often get to especially in that generation cop out a little bit and they're kind of off totally. to the side and if they show up it's like yeah he's yeah here. He's and, here. Uh-huh. but the moms are really in there and they have to really figure out how to yeah share that in an organic way yeah it's amazing that this has worked out the way that it did i think so too such a well-rounded <laughs> <laughs> human being amazing so you go through all this only child with the adoptive parents but with the big happy family and and oh. and then you go to <laughs> it was that a big happy family i mean well nobody has a big happy family i i'm given the circumstances it played out very well yes okay um and you went to did you go to school yeah did you go in san francisco or did you no i went to i moved out here i got as far away from them as i could to broaden my horizons and spread my wings and i went to new york university okay nice yeah for go violets for culture anthropology okay and how does that bring you to wine ah well uh were you a wine family no not at all i mean i guess growing up in the bay area you know you drink your dad's nap a cab and take some sips and they ask you what you think and you inherently don't like it. Um, but I was always very interested in uh, farming and, you know, really was always interested in food and cooking and farmers markets and worked at farmers markets. And when fair trade felt relevant, you know, worked um, for fair trade as an organization in San Francisco through high school and was just always very, very curious. Um, And so when I came to NYU, I kind of gravitated immediately towards restaurants and catering. Um, And then the other thing just with NYU, for better or for worse, is that 
everybody kind of pretends they're not a student and is really trying to situate themselves as immediately and as intensely as they can in the professional realm of New York. So everybody, you know, you're meeting these 18-year-old kids who are an anti-ballast as the drummer. And, you know, people who have these crazy jobs or these crazy internships because they're really go-getters and they also have a lot of privilege and but are utilizing it and are going for it and so you're just around all these doers and you know you immediately hit that sink or swim space so you were essentially doing that but in the restaurant industry and toward wine yeah yeah um and i ended up I guess the way I think about it in retrospect was really just kind of throwing darts at the board. And I was very lucky. I mean, it was a really interesting time for wine. Yeah, peak sommelier, like attention started getting, and it was kind of the rise of the star chef culture. Um, yeah, that from outside, that's how I see it is that it, it was this, are we talking about like six or seven years ago? Um, nine. Nine, okay, yeah. Nine, ten, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I moved in oh, oh nine. Yeah, so I, I use Indiana, where I'm from, as the barometer for these things. and Because once you get inside a city like New York, you, you don't really know what's going on in the rest of the country necessarily. Yeah. But even in New York, you could feel that wine was getting more popular just with the average person who just was a drinker, but not a drinker of any certain type. Totally. And suddenly this thing that had always been there all along was just, oh, I'm into this now. Well, actually. yeah, I mean, totally, I think from a con- like a consumer standpoint, but also just in terms of the way people's attention was turning in an actual restaurant space. So the wine program became something people would travel for. People would you know, the, the sommelier allure had really kind of peaked. Um, I mean, even like my first real wine gig, I was working for master sommeliers and individuals who are in the Psalm documentary, you know, like it was really a part of this scene where, um, yeah, Americans were really opening their eyes and spending their money. Mm-hmm. It kind of felt like the the Starbucks thing, except not homogenized and blasted through this one capitalist chain (laughs) but more just it wasn't i say that because it it didn't feel like a fad it just felt like now there's this thing that is part of our our culture sure it wasn't before like the way we didn't take coffee seriously now we do we didn't take wine seriously now yeah i think that's that's totally true i think still some i mean maybe this is just from where i sit because it is still a really niche world um but yeah, I think it was a time when people were really willing to just spend their money on whatever somebody with a pin would tell them is important. Mm-hmm. And I think that that got a little car- people got a little carried away, in my opinion. I think that yes, there was this do. kind of like revenge of the nerds kind of feeling. I don't know. Maybe of I'll regret the, that of later. Of but. grabbing the. Of grabbing holding, out of the cachet of, of being into this yeah i mean thing. and i say high society the few people who society. decided to dive into the enigma of wine and certainly thoroughly are obsessive and passionate and studious and have a lot to say but i think that there was a problem in my opinion especially at a young age when i was trying to get into it i just immediately was very turned off by this idea of holding knowledge over consumers heads um I really, really didn't like that. And I think that's something that has stuck with me to this day of um, how do we, how are, how do we be more inclusive? And I think that that's relevant in so many spaces, but you know, my realm is wine. So to me, when I was coming up, I saw people not being inclusive. I saw people being exclusive, utilizing their knowledge as a way to um, leverage power in a space that was always a misfit space and and getting people to spend more money and getting people or getting people to obsess and fetishize uh numbers instead of people instead of place instead of soil right so this is exactly why i wanted to talk to you about wine in general and natural wine because i couldn't be more ignorant about it and um i think maybe this is a good time to bring gabe in to Come on down. Don't don't be shy. (laughs) 
Here um, he so, is. <laughs> so Gabe it also sells natural wine in particular and knows quite a bit about wine, although he wouldn't say it and he's making a face that indicates otherwise. But um, so I, I want to start, if you guys can bear with me, as basic as yeah. what is wine? Because ah. I can say I know, but I, if you asked me to explain the process of making wine to you, it would be it would go poorly. Okay, so this isn't more of like a and, and it'll help us. It'll ground us for what is natural wine because we need to know what the different sure. you know the base before we get. I guess there is an inherent problem because what is wine to me makes me want to get all philosophical on you. Oh, we can do that. Too. <laughs> no, I won't. I was like, you should take it there. I I think let's start. Let's start with the the technical side. Just quick, just sure. a, a quick summary of what the process of making wine. But don't think for a second I'm not trying to get philosophical about it. There, there's a big problem with wine because you're not you're not um, forced and regulated to put anything on the bottle other than grapes and that it contains sulfites. And so it's this huge, huge, huge world where you have the purest of the pure these days in in terms of nothing, nothing added. Like these are grapes that haven't seen any chemicals, any fungicides, any herbicides, anything whatsoever. Um, or you're using native yeasts to start fermentation in the cellar, all these different things where you're truly not adding anything except grapes and perhaps a little sulfur to conventional wine space or industrial wine space where you're adding everything and anything where you're this spraying would be barefoot sure brand Franz, wine at the yeah. Gas station. yeah yeah so then you have the other realm which has become super ubiquitous as well and really took rise post-world war ii um really started infiltrating all over the world in you know these more antique old world wine realms um when technologies became a way of mitigating risk so you know think of franzia and all these things like there are so many crazy things you can add to wine you can spray all year long all these different chemicals and herbicides in the in the vineyards themselves then once you do harvest where you're using you know in an extreme case machines that are just i mean i've seen it firsthand we're just cutting everything and anything in sight and mm -hmm. spraying juice everywhere and i, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves but i do want to uh, i don't want to take anything for granted either so a, a sulfide is a preservative yes it's but it's also additive. yeah okay and the when you talk about mitigating risk is that something that i think it's less about cleanliness it's more about how do we harvest more grapes Oh, sure. Nature throws all of these things my way. How do I ensure that I'm able to get the most production out of my grape, my vines, right. so I can have more wine? Mm -hmm. And how do I ensure that those grapes get to my cellar right. and are okay. able to make wine? And so when you want to talk about something with natural wine, you're not using any tools other than nature, timing, patience, a lot of listening, to make wine, a wine product. Get it through fermentation, get it into a bottle. Maybe you're using one or two things like copper sulfate or sulfur additions. Uh -huh. So some people do use some things. So yeah. because this is another question I have, which is that um, natural obviously can mean a million things. Organic still means a million things. You can have the USDA organic stamp, but you can also just say these carrots are organic and it means literally nothing. Yeah. And so I assume the same thing's happening with natural wine. I mean, there's no way to regulate this. Or well, we'll get to that. To I, do just okay. wanna, I do just yeah. want to impart this idea that the like a lot, a lot, a lot of wines, most of the wine that most people will come into contact with is being sprayed all year long in the vineyards with things, things like, like I was saying, herbicides, fungicides, sure. chemicals. Right. Okay. Um, then in the cellar, a lot of wines, you're using inoculated yeast. So these are made in a lab. Often they'll select for certain flavors that are, you know, research proven to be associated or liked or whatever. And then often there's capitalization where you're adding sugar, literally bags of beet sugar mm. in a cellar or the opposite in warmer climates, they'll add acidifiers. So you're just, it's, it becomes a tinker tailor 
in the in the cellar and then there's really high levels of sulfur to preserve the wine a lot of filtration i mean there's so many different things there's things yeah. even as egregious as mega purple which is literally a dye that you add to wine so the average bottle chips. of wine that the average person's going to go buy at costco or wherever is not just not a natural bottle of wine it's a highly unnatural like almost like a chemically induced process yes okay grapes become the last thing in the ingredients list okay wow um and you know there's no fda regulation that says that there needs to be more transparency about that process Mm -hmm. um so that's obviously one one end of the that's industrial winemaking which is a huge huge part of our world sure and do i know the difference between an industrial wine and not, or, no, right? I Probably assume not. this is, there are wines that I think the bottle is just, the label's designed just so that I think I'm getting this, some medium sized producer. And well, it's I just think the, thing, bi- the bigger problem is just the enigma of it all. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people don't, for financial reasons, see value in giving knowledge to people sure. and being transparent. And I think that that's where natural wine comes in. So, of course, like everything I just described is industrial wine. That's really, really, that is a lot of production. And that is a lot of what most people are drinking, certainly. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of things in between that point and a zero, zero wine. So wine that has literally nothing added to it. And it is just grapes and natural sulfur occurring Mm -hmm. in it. Right. And there's so many different things in between that space. Um, But most people are probably drinking that wine with the image of a, a 70-year-old Italian woman crushing the grapes with totally. her bare feet. And, and the, yeah. Okay. They, they truly are. And, and I don't think that it's actually economical for people to be uh, informed. informed. Yeah. Certainly not. So, okay. So, if, if I want to go buy a natural wine... Something that has been frustrating me about it that I'm, I'm not clear on is that there are times when you grab a bottle in the store, Gabe, get in here, and you... <laughs> he, he was looking really cool, by the way. He looks like he's like Indiana Jones linen uh-huh. thing going on, oh, sipping sweet. some orange wine. We're sitting on the <laughs> ground. Yeah. So wait, actually before... He's just chilling. Before, he's putting out a vibe, though. He's really setting a tone. He, he often, really he often does. <laughs> um, so... Uh, I we actually before we go to the thing I was just gonna ask you I do want to back up and just do the quick literally what's happening when you make a wine like you you grow a grape you pluck a grape you smash it with your foot this is literally what I know I'm from so, Indiana Gabe I need help <laughs> I'm happy to explain this I do want it to be situated in natural wine however okay let's say what, what yeah let's go through the ideal wine making process what's the pie in the sky. So the great part, the optimistic part, is Mm -hmm. that we, at this stage in 2018, have America, and I mean, I'm very spoiled, we're in New York, but Mm -hmm. at large, I mean, my company, we distribute in 32 states, and it's growing all of the time. Yeah. So if you are curious, I guarantee you're able to find these wines where you are. Okay. Um, Which is very exciting. It wasn't even like that five years ago. Mm so, but you have to know why you want to find them to care and to spend an sure. extra dollar if you're capable. Sure, and, and but you also just have to ask. Uh huh. Or you have to ask to a retailer. <laughs> yeah, just ask a retailer. Go online. I mean, there's so. Oh many no, resources. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, be informed as to why you would even want to seek this out and why you care sure. whether or not it's natural. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um. So. Because again, I think it, it's not the difference between knowing that you're, you're the tomato you're buying at Walmart is far from natural which most people have a grip on now and then you decide you either care or you don't and it's that's a financial decision as well yeah but again i think the gap between wine and natural wine first of all some people don't even know that natural wine exists start there but then from there you just feel like the gap is smaller you're just like well the whatever regular wine is that's also pretty healthy right it has antioxidants or it's my fine. doctor said i could have a glass a day gets me drunk like uh-huh. whatever yeah okay so yeah, so I, the go. kinds of wines that me and Gabe work with, despite being from very different different portfolios, we really work with winemakers who care and are really situated where they are and are really thoughtful. And I think 
upholding not only their own deep philosophical, not everyone, but a lot of them have like a quite deep and philosophical read on what they're doing every day, but often are tethered to something historically. If it's not their own family, if it's not their region, it could be um, just like a reverence for the earth or just like a desire for joy. Mm-hmm. And um, so the kinds of, the, the way I want to see wine made at minimum is and and this is a way that some people are already making it or this is something that goes even beyond what people are doing right now no no no. this is how my winemakers okay at minimum are working so obviously there's so many iterations Mm -hmm. but it's all pretty like niche kind of nuanced takes but Mm -hmm. i think still interesting but perhaps for a different conversation but yeah i want to see somebody who has a relationship with the vineyards and is there every day in their every day is really thinking about the weather and the way they choose to spray if they are spraying something in their vines. I want to see somebody who is thinking about if they're using tractors or how often they're using tractors. I want somebody who thinks about their vines as a living, breathing uh, organism that's situated in a biodiverse space. So. There's going to be trees around. There's going to be, you know, different types of vegetation growing between the vines. There's going to be bug life. Mm-hmm. All signs of, of a healthy vineyard. Um, and they're probably not going to spray much. So they're going to be probably organic certified in their vineyard where you but, can still use a lot of things. But you allow, yeah, you allow for some spraying of certain types of things in yeah. this ideal version still. There's I some would things say, just have to be done. It's, well, it's, I don't think they have to be done. Okay. I think that there are ways to move away from that, but it takes, you know, yeah, like it takes a, there's always a transition period. Sure. But yeah, like I want minimal copper sulfite if none sprayed. And I want no sulfur ideally sprayed, but sometimes you have to spray. And a lot of my winemakers will use homeopathic tinctures that they're making out of different teas or tisane. And so they're spraying with that instead. So uh-huh. like like how you would um, treat your body with ginger and lemon or chicken soup, there's versions of that for the vines too. I was just going to say, there's always an, another option. It's a, Yeah, it's a matter of looking for it, being willing to put it together and taking the time for it to do its thing instead of the the... Uh, opting out of the convenience for convenience sake. Yeah, and taking time to listen to your your vines and the soil. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just about grape output. The winemakers that are the best and that I think are the kinds of wines that everybody should be buying and drinking are made by people who are thinking about quality over quantity. Yeah. And they're letting the earth show present them that and they're giving the earth the best resource possible to be able to give them that rather than manipulating it with technologies or chemicals to get that extra 10 percent. yeah yeah and then in the cellar i want somebody who is using only native yeasts so that means and this is like a big big piece of what makes a natural wine natural or fit in that large category these are yeasts that are growing and thriving on the outside of the grape skin because they're not being killed off by chemicals, herbicides, fungicides, pesticides all year long. So when you're harvesting, you're taking grapes that have their own inherent and unique um, native yeast strain around the grape skin. And so that adds that ends up dictating so much of the way a wine tastes and how it ferments and is inherently like a very distinct piece of terroir or the voice of that place or the voice of that grape. Right. So that's a really important thing. And what we see a lot of in conventional wines is people using inoculated yeasts um, from a lab. Because they have no choice because they've killed the real ones. Certainly. Native ones. Yeah, and it's less risky because often, you know, you'll go through fermentation really quickly and the longer fermentation happens, the more possibility for bacterial infections or off flavors or quote unquote flaws to arrive. Mm -hmm. So it's like I was saying before, mitigating risk, you know. Right, right, right. Um, Every step. Yeah. yeah. And sorry, can we, we still haven't, we keep getting sidetracked, but we've got to do the, just the basic steps of it. You you grow a grape, you pluck a grape. You, You look at Gabe every time I bring it up, Gabe. Lean forward. I guess you're growing <laughs> vines, you harvest the grapes, you bring them to your cellar, you crush them, 
You they put ferment. them in some vats. They <laughs> ferment. Oh, they, oh, yes, you're right. There's two rounds of fermentation. But not everybody's... Uh, how many... What percentage of winemakers are crushing these with their bare feet? I have to know this because this is the thing we think of and it's the romantic... That's funny. ...element, right? The human small. connection. A small amount. Small. A very small a amount. A lot smaller than any one of us would want. Okay. Yeah, very <laughs> small amount. Mm-hmm. Um, people will... It's just not... ...push the efficient. cap down with their feet. Okay. I've done that. Uh-huh. It's very fun. Um, it can get kind of dangerous in a very big vat because uh, a lot of carbon dioxide is being released, so you can pass out. If somebody's not watching, you can fall in it and die. Wow. Some danger. A danger element of danger. A little danger. danger. Yeah, <laughs> higher stakes than you think. Um, yeah, but so, so yeah. Okay, so you bring... I, I just... I'm... I'm weary to give you this, Andrew, largely because a lot of wine isn't made this way. Sure. No. Well, so. And I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to give it to you. But you're right. No, no, no. But it, then, then don't give me the version that people aren't doing. Give me the version that people are doing. Then, and why, why we don't like it? Well, no. So then you bring them in the cellar, and then it goes through alcoholic fermentation. So basically, what that is is it's when yeasts eat the sugars in a grape. Okay. And outputs alcohol. This is what I'm after. This is what I was. That's the yes. missing piece. That well, okay. how do we get to alcohol? I'm sorry, it took me so no, long. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. Um, okay, so sorry. Say that one more time. So critical. <laughs> this is critical. Yeah. The way booze is made is the yeast strain, or the yeasts interact with the sugar in a grape, and the yeasts eat the sugar. So sugar is basically food for the yeast. Mm-hmm. So they eat it. No, 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 no. And then they output alcohol. Okay, and that's what fermentation is. Correct. Okay, and saying that word for fifteen years, I didn't actually yeah, know what it meant. Exactly. Okay. And so <clears throat> when we're talking natural wine, we are talking native yeast strains are doing the eating of the grapes in the grapes themselves. So right. there's a symbiotic element. Yeah, that's there, a real cycle. Yeah, really tethered. Whereas, if you're pulling X grapes, and then you're adding X yeast strain. Again, yeast strains can also select for certain... They, they do create the flavor. They dictate the speed of fermentation. They're, sure. they're, very, they're the, the crux, in my opinion, of wine. Yeah. And so if you're using inoculated yeast, it's something that you buy, and you can also select for certain tastes within it. And there's just like less of um, dynamic interaction, less of a unique interaction. And yeah, there are thousands this. and billions and millions types of yeast strains. You know? Yeah, and you've destroyed this... Very unique. Incestuous cycle. That... The voice. Mm-hmm. The voice of the grape. Okay. So, essentially, then a natural wine is not doing that, obviously. Like you said, the native yeast is a key element in natural mm-hmm. wine, in any natural wine. So, I, I'm not going to go to a store and buy a wine that says it's a natural wine, but is using inoculated yeasts. Yes, I would thing? hope so. Uh-huh. Anyway. But that, so that's the scary thing. And so, but but what what is your guys' read of, of how many people are doing this right? And at least in, as far as the native yeast go, obviously in terms of spraying, that sounds like it's pretty open. You don't really know what you're. Yeah, I think for. I think um, you know inoculated yeasts are maybe one of those few things that more people shy away from, and are, I think more people really want to try to be using native yeasts. It's more the amount of spraying that you're doing in a vineyard, perhaps, and capitalization and things like that in mm-hmm. a cellar. And just to play devil's advocate, I can see why it would be scary for someone who's been doing this for 50 years in their family, the traditional way, to suddenly kiss the all the sprays goodbye and taking... I mean, do you, do you need to just not produce for a year or two to let this transition take place where the yeasts are, are growing natively and they work? properly and everything functions are you are you taking a hit as a business i mean sometimes yeah um so then it's just a question of whether or not this has gotten big enough that that seems worth it to them or they have access to a distributor that wants to push them as a natural wine well it's not so much as a distributor that's pushing them it's often the winemakers are making these decisions on their own okay or making the decision often because they've tasted somebody else's wines and seen how much better they are or have walked through somebody's vineyard and see how much more alive they are, how much yeah. more like plants or just having or a, nature the a, vineyard feels. A philosophical awakening about what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. and it's I mean there are so you hear so many people. Um, yeah, you come to it through the exposure. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's relevant on the winemaking side, which, you know, those are the people doing the real work. I mean, those are the monks. Those are the the true, true kind of, um, they're the ones doing the real work. They're the ones, Yeah. they're the monks. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, if we want to get philosophical about it, there's a, this is something that happens in life in general. It's your personal experience is what dictates the decisions you make more than totally. anything else. Yeah. Okay. So it's often, yeah, tasting it or, yeah, seeing what somebody else is doing. Mm-hmm. And so do you guys have a sense of if this is changing all over the world? Is this a Western city folk thing? Or you, you just said you guys are distributing in 32 states. So Yeah. Okay. So this is, and, and I don't, it doesn't feel to me like a trend. It feels like a continuation of the organic thing that's happened in the rest of food. Where it's yeah, I mean, again, like, it's definitely not a trend. I think a lot of people want to, like, paint it in that direction. Um, I think there are elements of it that are trendy. I think that there are people who are in it for perhaps the wrong reasons. Not so much on a winemaking side because it is just really hard to do. So it's not really a hat thing you can half-ass. Mm-hmm. You're either in or you're not. Yeah. Um, it's not easy. Um, but I think on our side, on the consumer side, on the professional side, on... Yeah, the people not in a vineyard every day doing the hard shit, like, I think that there's a lot of trend and I think there's a lot of people in it for cachet or because it feels cool or because it feels fresh or because it's more aesthetic. I don't even know. Sure. So there's definitely a lot of that. And yeah. I think that um, I think that ultimately, I think this is a space that I want to be inclusive and I want more people to get excited, but I think that becomes really offensive to how hard it is to actually make these wines and how how risky and how dedicated these winemakers are, even the ones that don't like their wines. Right. It's a big risk. You're saying it, it would be offensive to go to a traditional winemaker and say, dude, why aren't you doing this? Well, people like, just co-opt it. it. I think people just kind of can have a tendency to like kind of just think it feels cooler. Sure. And just like hop on it. Sure. And don't really care. Mm-hmm. Um, but also... I have to be my own devil's advocate because not everybody needs to be asking questions. Like the fact that a businessman at some restaurant is drinking a natural wine and doesn't even know it is also one of my favorite things in the world. Yeah, sure. So I love that too. And and that's like the work of my really cool buyers mm-hmm. in the city. So Yeah. And yeah, like one of the things I really love is that, you know, you can find hardcore natural wines and organic wines everywhere and anywhere from three-star Michelin restaurants to fucking dive bars. Yeah. And I love that that's like, it's it's in the ether. It's here. Yeah. Whether or not you know you're coming into contact with it. And that's what's really exciting. And so the people who do care about whether or not their tomatoes from the farmer's market or whether it's from the Walmart or for the people who can understand that that tomato from the farmer's market tastes so much better and feels sensitive to that and feels like that's something that they want to be more conscientious of not wine and booze at large it's definitely a really fun space to start thinking about the implications of how you're spending your money yeah and so the actually the main reason i wanted to talk to you guys about this is because it seems to me and i can't believe we haven't touched on this yet but this is this from what i've tasted so far which is not a lot it is does not taste exactly like the wine I've been drinking my whole life. This is a little bit of a different thing in terms of the flavor and the acidity and everything, right? There's like a little bit of a... There's I don't want to go as far as to say like a barrier to entry, but it's not... If you were to walk into a wine store, buy a bottle of natural wine, bring, bring it to a dinner party thinking you were just bringing a bottle of, of red wine and you open it, I mean, I could imagine a person thinking they actually got a bad bottle of wine. And that's not to say it tastes bad, but just that we're not used to this level of vinegar. Well, so this is where I want to push back. Yeah. So what I do want to say, and I think something that when we are talking about this idea of inclusivity versus exclusivity, the thing that to me is really powerful about natural wine as a category is that it's taking it's taking the blinders off of the way wine is supposed to taste. It's offering the buyer 
and the consumer a broader range of flavor expression and complexity to participate with. Yeah. And so I think a real hallmark of how this movement even started here was really from a punk perspective, was really about this pushback towards white tablecloth, the kind of pretentiousness that comes around that. And it was about returning to, you know, a more raw drink, a farmer drink, a rustic drink, a challenging drink, a peculiar drink, a perhaps flawed drink at certain moments. Or even just a real drink. I mean, I feel like it isn't going too far to say that we haven't necessarily been drinking wine. We've been drinking this other thing that we made because <laughs> we've got a return we've to wine. intervened so much yes. that yeah so i think it's a return to wine yeah it sounds like a, as much of a, a purist as you might be and i i say that with a positive connotation yeah yeah it sounds like you do allow for a reasonable amount of intervention it's more about doing what needs to be done rather than doing things just because that's the way you were doing it absolutely like okay. the whole principle to me is about transparency and is about no recipes. It's about the dance, the responsiveness, the evolution. And how do we get more transparency? Is that something that just needs to be happen in the market and just become a competitive thing? Like we're telling you everything that's in this. Like you see these granola bars now that just list the ingredients and that's the, literally the, the label. You know, that's kind of an interesting analogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, exa- I think that's a really relevant thing. People deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies deserve to know how they're spending their money. Mm-hmm. And I think the more that we can prioritize these conversations around who's making this, why it's being made, or like what's in it, or how it's being made, the better for everybody. Something I'm really curious is about, so Gabe comes from a really, he comes from such a deep understanding of both food and the way beverage interacts with food, um, but has a really, really extensive cocktail and spirits background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my, I I tell the story a lot when I talk about my background in New York and coming here and being a cocktail bartender for years and kind of seeing my interest on a personal level and a professional level kind of plateau in a way and and my interest in wine just constantly going up and up and up and mm-hmm. I'm spending my money uh, on my days off buying cool bottles of wine and drinking them with friends and taking vacations to wine growing regions in, in the world and and reading about wine and it's just at a certain point it just became totally apparent and this is where I should follow that and I when I think about what what would draw me in that direction I, I do think it's kind of everything that Alexis was talking about here is just that um, there is something just in, in like the plainest way when you look at a bottle of whiskey it, like, it's really not there's a there's a his, history maybe about how long it's been produced and where it's been produced and but it tends to and be kind a of the history around narrative. the drinking culture but it very much is a brand scenario and it just it I there's so it's like where the hell was that corn grown for that bottle of bourbon like mm. who knows and who even cares and who's asking any questions sure and it's not that that is immediately that's there's nothing wrong with that it's just that my interest just went elsewhere it was like where's the story yeah and where mm. and who's willing to tell it and i want to know more about it and it just drew me there so which draws not, people as well and yeah. I, yeah and i think that's like in a nutshell that's kind of like what that's what's going on in in <laughs> natural wine mm-hmm and and just people I mean clearly across the board people are paying more and more attention to what's what they're buying and what's going in their body and like kind of making these educated decisions as they should be yeah and it just seems like an obvious place to like throw your interest sure yeah I I don't imagine winemakers being fame hungry necessarily but is there are are we on the horizon of like a culture of of like rock star wine producers? I sure hope not. Well, we're already we're already there. Is it well, I, well I, I'm curious. I'm, I mean, this yeah, is a total right. guess. If not, no, I haven't right. even read an article that leaned toward that. But I'm just Alexis, I can only imagine that pe- as people get more and more interested about where it's coming from, and these these people have tend to have interesting lives. I think. But it's also been like this forever. I think not just with natural wine, just with winemakers in general. Mm-hmm. But I think before. The notoriety went to you know these more blue blood holders of these estates and this lifestyle and this bourgeois kind of cachet, and now it's going more towards wow you really make these insane products and there's something like really inherently you're making this wine that's giving epiphany to so many people 
And I think that in our maybe micro wine community, sometimes people want to like hate on, but I think there is inherent value that if any winemaker can do that, they're doing something interesting, they're doing something right. It may not be what I love, it may not be what you love, but it's getting people involved, it's getting people asking questions and it's getting people more interested. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's really exciting. And I think for me, I would like to see more, again, I can't reiterate enough and I think people overlook it too often. Natural wine is hard to make. Yeah, I think as organics becomes more in vogue, there's a lot of shit you can still pull in the organic realm that will get you the criteria. Mm-hmm. But if you want to talk about real deal winemaking, and again, like Gabe and I, with our companies under the tutelage of our bosses, we go visit our winemakers multiple times a year. Uh-huh. And we're going there for the relationship. We're going there to understand the land, to see what's happening, to understand the way it moves throughout the year, to see that it's real. And it is, and it's not easy. And especially with climate change, it's getting harder and harder. You know, people are losing upwards of 90% of their grapes in certain years to lots of different things. It's not easy. So yeah. to me, I want to see more of my winemakers become famous. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes on the buying end, people get a little flustered by the five names that have become truly famous. Mm. Um, and I think that they need to get checked because a, they're still in their vineyards every every day and know their vineyards so well and they're famous for a reason. Yeah. And I really believe that, even the ones who aren't in my portfolio. Yeah, they're not famous because they have a, a sexy story or no. something. They're famous because they're mean, putting the maybe work Maybe they have a sexy story too, but sure. and maybe they're in a sexy place, but they're still <laughs> putting in the work every fucking day and mm-hmm. it's real work. It's not, there's no shortcuts. Right. And... I- and on top of that, like, I want to see more of my winemakers become famous. I want to see more money go into natural wine. I right. want to see less of my winemakers be starving artists and successful artists. Sure. That, that's, yeah, sort of what I was trying to say with the, the cachet not being such an evil thing. It's like whatever sure. winds up driving this. That's a really good, I mean, what Alex was just saying is a very good point. And I, I kind of checked what I said. And I guess I have, like, an inherent... Uh, inability to like i'm like you're a sellout you're a sellout just all through my whole life and i guess i didn't want to i don't want i don't want there to be like wine star fuckers out there sure what there already are there are they and but but you know what they deserve to have groupies sure yeah let them have them right (laughs) that's what i think so you know what it gets other people wanting to do it i'll take back my my former statement the last thing i wanted to talk about is this um and I'm going to butcher it because I, I know nothing about it and I barely remember talking about it with you guys a couple months ago, but the, there's a sort of an astrological element that some people do track. And, and I'm curious, well, I guess I have to zoom out for a second because, first of all, I remember visiting about 10 years ago upstate at a farm that was a biodynamic farm, which, as I understood, a biodynamic, was, that was just what organic was. That, that was originally what it was called, and there was a guy that just called it biodynamic, and he was starting to just think at all about what was going into a crop. But f- to them, at this farm, biodynamic, this was about lining up with the lunar cycle. When do you plant the thing? When do you harvest it? And a million other things. And so I'm curious if that is a factor for a lot of the farmers, and if it's a factor for you guys on the other end. Oh, okay. I'm going to jump in before Alexis because she's going to say this much more eloquently than I will. No. <laughs> or something different, just more more, more engaging. I, when people ask me the difference between organic and bio and biodynamic farming practices, for me, it just seems like... And I, Is it splitting hairs? No, uh, but I... I I I will say it like on a, like if I just had to say it elevator pitch I'd be like it's organic plus but that's like underselling the thing mm. you know to to the nth degree I think for me biodynamics and, and thinking about biodynamics when you think about how you're gonna farm is just a holistic view of the whole ecosystem that's happening in your farm mm-hmm. it's not just about checking a box that means organic meaning like no synthetic or like petrol based like pesticides herbicides or fungicides yeah. something like that it's more like how can i have this like how can i create biodiversity in the vineyard like instead of just having vines like what kind of trees can i plant along the side of the vi- the, the edge of the vineyards or like what kind of bird life will those trees attract what kind of will i have cover crops between the vines will i grow green grass will there be any sort of like is there some sort of uh, radish or something like that that's a 
that works against keeping some sort of birds away or pests that, you know, is there anything like, like how can you just tweak and have your vineyard kind of teeming with, with diversity with, mm-hmm. across the board? And just like having a monoculture, like when you see a cornfield in Indiana and then think about a super healthy looking vineyard, I mean, they, they're just so far from each other. Yeah. Like you can pluck a vegetable out between a vine or a really vibrant garden, you know? Yeah. Sure. And how, and then, or like then you're going to, or you grow some herbs that then you'll use in a tincture to spray your vines instead of using a chemical. Right. And so it's that, that when I say organic plus, that's what I mean. It's not, it's like just a holistic view of the vineyard and how, and anyone who's, in my estimation, anyone who's farming biodynamic is just a more thoughtful farmer. And that's yeah. what I want. In the end, like when you talk about natural wine, really what I'm buying in the bottle or what I want is like someone who's unbelievably thoughtful about what they're doing and you can't do it any other way. Yeah, You're not paying to have a box technically checked. It's more of like, this is the ethos that I want in, embodied inside the person who's growing and making this wine. Yeah, it's a philosophy. Yeah, it makes sense that there would be a lot of headroom above just the what organic means, given that well, we've talked about what it means. It means very little, actually. But I didn't realize it could go as far as the environment an environmental element, environmental meaning in the sense of what literally surrounds the, the vineyard and what, yeah. yeah, how it builds on I itself. Mean, if you are not. I know we've Alexis and I have talked about this, but like yeah, like if you're in a super healthy, often biodynamic vineyard, and you like, uh, sometimes their neighbors are like conventional farmers, mm-hmm. and it's like the you the, the contrast is so stark. It's yeah. it's it's like uh, even to the scorched naked eye. earth, yeah, it's scorched like the earth, yeah, the lunar versus landscape like Eden. versus Eden. yeah, like okay. truly, I can make sure you pictures of just barren like sand <laughs> like compacted but like you know looks like a steamroller rolled through there versus someone she was talking earlier about like are you using tractors how often are you using tractors or like yeah. it's just even not compacting the soil right. or not tilling the soil because you have like something that's like anaerobic versus aerobic bacteria that exist like if you just flip those and you just flip the ecosystem mm-hmm. something that was yeah. functioning just fine above ground and something was fine just fine in the soil and then you just like till it and it's all of a sudden you just turn them on their head and so and it sounds like it all begets itself once the ball is rolling you you till less if you impact it less with the wheel of a tractor in in the same way that if you get the biodiversity up it fights back against the elements a little yeah. better it's also a kind con- what i it's pretty apparent as well as there's just a constant tooling and retooling of all like no one is like okay nailed it yeah (laughs) like that just does not exist it's always like we planted this tree there and then we realized that like these two it was like taking too much from these vines these two rows so we like you know we took the tree down or something like just you can't it's it's always a, a retooling it's a and rethinking and a, a modifying a and, listening. A, and a listening to what's going on and and like again that's the kind of farmer that I want that's the kind of winemaker that I want to support. Yeah, I agree with everything that Gabe just talked about. I also do want to mention that organics is a certification that you get in a vineyard. Right. Biodynamic is a certification you also get in a vineyard. Oh, really? So people can get these certifications. Getting a biodynamic certification is really hard. Okay. I mean, a lot of people can do it, and we want to see that, and that's great if we can see that. Um, And it really means you're not using anything except um, copper sulfate and sulfur um, spraying, but that's really it. Um, Whereas organics, as we mentioned, you can spray a lot of stuff. If you have organic certification, a lot of people maybe aren't spraying those things, but there are certain people with the certification who maybe are. Sure. So again, it is referential to very distinct certification bodies in every country around the world. Okay, got it. That being said, they are also broader philosophies and um, people can be as to the book or as like recipe based with biodynamics or as kind of um, fluid with the tools that those ideologies provide. And I think one common theme that I've noticed and Gabe kind of is touching upon too, is that I think a lot of producers maybe when they first start 
they get kind of obsessive maybe with like the recipes of biodynamics or the recipes of farming a certain way and they have to be able again to listen to dance to evolve to understand okay how do i apply this broader philosophy that is inherently about where i am and how to make it live and thrive the best it can as if i'm not here Mm -hmm. and how do i make these ideas applicable to this individual space because every little microclimate is so different and changes all of the time and so the best winemakers in my opinion maybe have you know x or y certification certainly as a base but they're stretching beyond that Mm -hmm. um and they're really really always questing to uplift their land uplift their vines uplift the production however they can and Mm -hmm. i think there's also been this long idea of minimal interventionism and like intervening the least that you can and i think the common theme that i've heard more and more from my winemakers who have now been working biodynamically ish or organic for over a decade 15 years two decades you know is this idea that it's not that we're minimally intervening at all we're just shepherding or we're listening and I think the more a winemaker can uphold those virtues, the better their wine is. Mm-hmm. And the more that they can understand the complicity that they have in the vineyard site while allowing it to speak the way it needs to and thrive the way it ought to and it deserves to is the better winemaker. I think that's a great place to end, but I don't want to end without having another glass poured. I want to pour it into the mic. I want, <laughs> I want to hear it. The wine hit the glass in the mic, Gabe. You can let the wine hit the floor. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, you don't have headphones on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cheers, guys. Cheers. Yay! Oh yeah. couple things. I followed up with Alexis on email and she told me about an application called When Wine, which tells you when your wine will taste its best down to the day, apparently. Even the most skeptical swear by it. So check that out or don't. Uh, Nobody's paying me. I also asked her about a list of go-to wines, which is tricky because we don't all have the same access, but basically she looks for a wine that's certified organic at a minimum, biodynamic is a plus, and she likes wines that are 50 milligrams per liter of sulfur addition or less, just a personal number she's created over time. And finally, a burning question that I didn't manage to ask, does natural wine give you less of a hangover? Yes. It's hard to measure that, but by and large, the the general consensus is that yes for all the obvious reasons because there's less chemicals less added sugars the process is less forced there's less alcohol by volume less sulfites um but largely because you're drinking a little bit less alcohol by volume Uh, but you know you can always find your way to a hangover if you really want it that's it this has been no big deal Thank you.